Thank you so much for listening to today's podcast of the teaching at Life Journey Church in Crozet, Virginia. We believe that the gospel really is good news, that the blood of Jesus worked, and that Jesus meant it when he said, it is finished. In Christ, we are dead to sin and alive to God, forgiven and free, clean and close, holy and beloved, blessed and made new. If God is doing something special in your life, we would love for you to tell us about it. You can simply email us at info at lifejourneyva.com. One of the reasons we are able to provide these weekly podcasts is because of the generosity of people like you. If you would like to support the proclamation of the gospel of the grace of God, you can make a donation now on our website, lifejourneyva.com. Today, we are continuing this with a, with a theme, a little minor theme about when hurt happens, not from an outside-in hurt, you know, like being rejected by somebody or, or something along those lines. What we're dealing with is one of the hurts that is the, probably the most difficult to really get through because it's a hurt that's sort of inside out, not outside in. I mean, let's be honest, outside in hurts, but what about when it's inside out? And so this idea, these last three weeks of this fall emphasis, we're dealing with this hurt of when sin happens yet again. And the emphasis there is the word yet, meaning it's that same thing that we've been struggling with for years, perhaps, maybe our entire adult life, maybe even from before we were a Christian, and it's happening yet again. And a lot of times when we think of habitual sins, we think of, you know, the big guys, you know, pull out the big guns, oh, we're talking about the big sins. Well, hey, if we want to think about those, that's fine too, but how about just sin? When sin happens yet again, we also tend to think about someone else when we think about when sin happens yet again too. I'm just saying, hey, let's, 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 let's kind of think on those same sins that tend to manifest themselves even through us. Maybe it's a critical spirit. Maybe it's anger that you just can't get over, bitterness towards somebody that's offended you. I don't know. But it's something that happens over and over. And we've taken these repeated trips at the end of church services up to an altar to tell God how sorry we are and and thinking that he'll forgive us if we just ask for it, totally missing the, the reality of forgiveness, that it's by the shed blood of Christ and not by our asking. And, and so we think that we, we have this cycle of coming forward and, and trying to conquer it, telling Jesus that we'll never do it again. And of course, it happens yet again. And it hurts. It hurts deeply. It's frustrating. It's painful. It's demoralizing. It's even debilitating. We think that we're unfit, unuseful for the kingdom of heaven. What is God going to use me for? Because I keep doing this yet again. So how do we find healing for this sin that happens yet again? It's a hurt. Is there healing for this, or is it just something that we're going to have to put up with for the rest of our lives? Last week, I introduced this idea um, that the answer to this question can, can do one of two things, and we'll do our A and our B. If you're here with us last week, you know what I'm talking about. But Answer A, how do we find healing for this hurt? Answer A can actually lead us into a greater spiral of more bondage and more hurt, actually creating more frustration, more despair. But there's an answer B. Answer B is the answer can actually produce in us a freedom to the point where we actually live free as we actually already are now in Christ. So in my opinion, the majority of Christianity 
is over here trying to answer it with answer A. They say, okay, here you're a Christian. You have this besetting sin that you're sinning the same sin over and over. Here's where we need to move beyond grace. Grace got you saved, but now we need to add to grace rules and regulations, laws, and hold each other accountable to these rules that we set up so that these sins would end. Sounds very reasonable. Sounds very religious. Sounds like it would make sense. And that's what I used to believe and preach, as I said last week, for the first 30-some years of my life. But I don't anymore. I shared this last week, and I'll share it again next week. I don't anymore because the Scriptures actually teach a different message. So why in the world would we teach something that the Scriptures don't teach? Seems kind of silly, doesn't it, Will? That we teach something that the Scriptures don't teach. So what we're going to see last week, today, and next week is that the Scriptures teach B, not A. That that it's not just grace that gets us in the door, but it's actually grace and grace alone that teaches us, listen, how to say no to sin and yes to Jesus. My thinking always was the law taught me how to say no to sin. Do not and do, right? But that's not what the Scriptures teach. The Scriptures teach that it's grace, the very grace of God that teach us to say no to sin and yes to Jesus. And so we've been camping out in this little letter that Paul wrote to a guy named Titus some 2,000 years ago where we see this being displayed in a huge magnifying megaphone sort of way. Titus was a a Gentile who Paul had led to the Lord, and he was left on this island called Crete, which is off the shore of of Greece. He was left on Crete to, to help this young church that Paul had planted to appoint some elders and to set some things in order. The people of Crete were actually known as the biggest liars in the Roman culture community. In fact, to, to act the Cretan, if someone called said to that, hey, Larry, you're acting a Cretan today. That, that's, I'm calling Larry a liar. That's the phrase, the idiom that they would use in the Roman world to call somebody a liar. So these Cretans, the people of Crete, they were dishonest, they were immoral, they were pagans. I mean, they, they had no concept of God and righteousness at all. They were immoral, deceitful, deceptive people. So you can understand why Paul had to leave Titus to continue working there because of their wicked baggage and of the culture that continued even in this young, young church. To make matters worse, okay, here's where it gets bad. You can read Titus yourself. Here's where things get really, really bad. There were Christian Jews from Jerusalem who were following Paul around on his different missionary journeys and they saw the wickedness of the people of Crete, and they say, we've got a solution. A, Jesus got you in the door, but now, read it for yourself, Titus chapter 1, but now you need to follow the commandments of the old covenant. You need Moses to actually fix the sinning that's happening in your life. And so Paul's writing this letter to to encourage Titus to not follow what those people are saying. In fact, he calls them, and I have these things written down, he calls them, uh, let's see, where's my notes? He calls them an abomination. Paul calls the people who are teaching A, that you need the law to actually say no to sin and yes to Jesus. He calls them an abomination. He calls them disobedient. And he says, if they continue in this way, they are disqualifying themselves from proclaiming the gospel. 
I'd say it's pretty harsh. And I'm confessing to you that I spent the first 30 some years of my life teaching A, but not anymore. Because the scriptures teach B. That it's not just grace that gets you in the door and then you go back to the law, the Ten Commandments, etc., to say no to sin and yes to Jesus, but it's actually Jesus himself, the grace of God, that not only saves you, but also instructs you to say no to sin and yes to Jesus. Again, read it for yourself. Quick time out. Do not ever, ever, ever take my word for something. If you do, you are doing a huge disservice to yourself. Call no man your teacher. I'm not your teacher. No one who stands here is your teacher. The Holy Spirit who lives in you is your teacher. Listen to him. Have him guide you. Have him reveal things to you. Not me. Okay? Time back in. So read it for yourself. Roman, uh, Titus is three chapters. Take 10 minutes to read maybe. It's amazing. Read it for yourself. So it's not law that instructs us to say no to sin and yes to Jesus. It's actually Jesus himself. How does that work? Well, that's what we're looking at, these four little verses in Titus chapter 2, last week, this week, and next week, to learn, to see how we can find healing for when sin happens yet again. So Titus chapter 2, starting in verse 11, let's read these verses. It won't take us long because we talked about them a lot last week. It says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. So the grace of God has appeared. It brings salvation. Every Christian would say, right on. The Jewish Judaizers, that's what they're called, Judaizers. They would say that, yeah, it's the grace of God that brings us salvation. But they would say, as we've been talking, it's now the law. It's now rules and regulations that instruct us on how to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. But Paul says, no, it's not just the grace of God that appears brings salvation, but it's also the grace of God has appeared to instruct us to say no to sin and yes to Jesus. I promise this is not a typo. In fact, I almost brought it with me, but you can come over to the office if you want and read out of my Greek New Testament if you want to see what it says there. This is not a typo. This is actually what Paul actually wrote. This is revolutionary. Paul is saying that it isn't Moses and rules and regulations, but it's the grace of God that actually teaches us to say no to sin and yes to Jesus. And remember, the grace of God that's appeared, we have to understand who this is. We talked about this a lot last week. We won't do it much now. The grace of God, grace is just a concept. Grace is an idea. It's an awesome idea. It's an amazing idea. But grace is just a a doctrine of sorts. The grace of God, he's not just talking about a teaching. He's talking about a person. Who is the grace of God that's appeared, bringing salvation and instruction? It's Jesus. It's Jesus Christ himself. Jesus is the personification of the grace of God. In fact, we don't have to guess that. Verse 13 tells us that. Go to verse 13. It says, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great uh, God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So I mean, he defines it for us. So if Paul is saying it's not law that changes you from the inside out, but it's grace, it's Jesus, how does that happen? And verse 14 is sort of our launching pad for these three weeks. Last week, we looked at this first part. Who gave himself to redeem us from every 
lawless deed and to purify for himself a people. We looked at that last week. We're not going to talk about that right now. You can listen to the podcast if you're interested. But the more we see that we actually have been forgiven from every lawless deed, that actually instructs us on how to live in this world to say no to sin and yes to Jesus. This week, we're going to look at this next part, a people for his own possession. We're going to dive into that for a second. And then next week, we're going to see this last part, a people that are zealous for good works. We'll get that next week. So here's our thesis. You guys, we're working off of this thesis that Paul's given us. The more grace we see, the more changed we'll be. So if we really want to be changed, if we really have these these hurting, nagging, habitual, repeating sins that are continually manifesting themselves through us, Paul's solution isn't to go to the law. His solution is to see what Jesus has actually done. Because the more grace we see, the more changed we'll be from the inside out. So let's talk about this thing of being his own possession. We talk about possessions, uh, prized possessions. Uh, You guys have a prized possession. What are some characteristics of of this prized possession? One of the things, at least some prized possessions that I've had in my life, is before you have it, you want it, right? It's kind of weird to have a prized possession if you never wanted it. It doesn't make it a prized possession. And so you longed for it. You've desired it. You've wanted it. And then... Once you identify it and you've wanted it and you've longed for it, you then move to do whatever you need to do to get it, right? We understand this, even if it's materialistic things. We'll spend an extraordinary amount of money to get something because we want it so badly. So we've wanted it, we've desired it, we'll do whatever it takes to actually get it, and then once we get it, we cherish it, we protect it, we defend it against things that would hurt it. If it's a car, we've desired this 1969 cherry red, apple red, you know, whatever. I don't want to fight the whole Chevy Ford thing, so we'll just say whatever. And then we get it. We spent a whole lot of money to get it, a whole lot of time, a whole lot of energy, and then we put a cover over it so we can't look at it to protect it, (laughs) right? We understand this. Girls, whatever you guys cherish, I don't know. Um, just come up with something. I don't know. But it might be surprising to us, but that process is actually wired into us. Now, we've perverted it through materialism, but it's actually wired into us from the one who created us. Did you know that God desires a prized possession? Did you know that? Did you know that he, has, he longed to have for himself a people of his own possession? Did you know that he did whatever he needed to do to actually secure that for his own? And do you realize that now that it is his, he loves it and he cherishes it and he protects it and he guards it from anything that would like to hurt it? And we're going to take our few minutes that we have left to just take a brief survey of human history through the Scripture to see this process of God desiring a people for himself and doing whatever he needed to do to get it and then now defending it and cherishing it and loving it. So let's go to Genesis chapter 1. You say, wow, we are 
going through a history of humanity. It'll be really fast. Genesis chapter 1, it'll be really fast, said the preacher. Genesis chapter 1, whoa, I don't know what's going on there, with, but it's Genesis 1, 26. Uh, Just imagine it says that. Um, It says, then God said, so this is creation account, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. God desired a people a people of his own possession, to the point that he actually created all that is so that he could reveal who he actually is, full of grace and truth, to a people, to a creation that he could have as his own. It's amazing. And God created man, Adam, and God actually created a a treasure, a prized treasure for man. And it was his wife. Because nothing else that God created was suitable for man. And so he created something that man could actually cherish and love in the same way that God actually cherishes and loves mankind. Sort of a shadow, sort of a picture. So God created a people for his own possession, and he even created a treasure for his people. Something as beautiful and awesome as a wife to cherish and to have, to love. But we also know what happens in Genesis chapter 2, this paradise go south. When Adam and Eve decided to rebel against God and try to be God actually without God, and they disobeyed God. And in that moment, this prized possession of Adam and Eve, a people of his own possession, actually became no possession of his because sin entered into the scene, into the humanity. And chapter 2 verse 8 says that Adam and Eve heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So this once prized possession was with God when the cool of the day, things were going great, and then sin entered, and now that which was a possession was a people is now no people because sin has separated mankind from God as far as it could possibly separate them. In fact, they died spiritually that day. Now, in chapter 2, God promised that an offspring, a future generation offspring, will actually set all this back into the right, even better ways. So let's don't think that God was surprised and shocked when Genesis chapter 2 happened. No. The cross, Jesus, was always plan A. But he has slowly, patiently revealing this great plan and this great desire to have a people of his own possession that nothing can actually take away, even sin itself. Now, if we fast forward a couple generations, we get to the book of Exodus, and God desires to choose a people, the Jewish people. He actually picked a man, Abraham, and his offspring, generations later, would be this people who would be chosen to reveal to all of mankind God's great desire to have a people of his own possession. And we get a little glimpse of this in Exodus chapter 19. And here's the deal. God has brought them out of the land of Egypt, and he brings Moses up to Mount Sinai, and all of the people of Israel are standing there at the foot of it. And this is what God says to Moses. He says, now then, listen to this, if... We've got those red, so you can kind of, well, that's not red, but it should be. If you will indeed obey my voice, if you keep my commandments or covenant, this is talking about the old covenant, 
the law. Then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words, Moses, that you're going to go tell the Israelites. If you keep this covenant that I'm about to create, if, then you'll be my possession. Remember, God desires a possession. He desires a people of his own possession. Well, verse 7, Moses comes down the mountain, and he calls the elders and the people to himself. And verse 7 says, he set before them all the, the words that the Lord had commanded him, and the people answered. Here was their reply. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. So they are entering into this covenant. They are making a promise. We will do everything that he tells us to do. I said this last week, but this is like the first promise keepers convention. We'll do it all. How many of us have come to an altar and say, I'll do it this time. I really will do it this time. And we end up not. Well, so they say that they're going to do it. The very next chapter, God starts giving Moses the, co- the covenant. We're familiar with this. It's called the Ten Commandments and then all the, co- the laws that come after it. So the very, very first covenant, the very, very first law he gives them is the first of what we call the Ten Commandments. So God says these words, saying, I am the Lord you got, your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Out, that, we're going to come back to that in a second. That's very important. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not take for yourself an idol or any likeness in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. So the very first law, the very first rule that they say, we'll do anything and everything you say is have no idol, no other God but me. Well, how do they think they did with this? Well, you can read it yourself, Exodus 20 through Exodus 32. God is giving Moses all of this thing we call the law. So 600-some rules and regulations of exactly how they are to do, what they are to do, and how they are to do it. And so Moses is up on the top of the mountain for a while, for 40 days or so. And in chapter 32, verse 1, the people get antsy. You ever been antsy? You know, you're sitting there waiting for your wife to finish shopping or something? You're getting antsy. It's like, when, when is he coming back? The people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, And the people assembled around Aaron. Now, Aaron was actually the leader of the the priests that would come. And they say to Aaron, so Aaron's a pretty, you know, honorable guy, you'd think. They say to Aaron, come and make us a God who will go before us. As for this Moses, you know, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt. Wait, wait, God just said, who brought them out of the land of Egypt? that God did. And now they're saying that Moses brought them out of the land of Egypt. We do not know what's happened to him. He's been up there on that mountain, and there's fire, and there's hail, and there's brimstone. All this stuff happened up there. We don't know what's happened to him, so we need you to make us a god. I don't have time to get into it today, but verse 2, we'll talk about verse 2 one day. This sounds like a good idea to Aaron for some reason. Why in the world does this sound like a... We'll talk about that. Maybe we should have some coffee and talk about that because I think it's pretty amazing why that becomes a good idea. He says, all right, tear off your gold earrings out of your wives, out of your daughters, out of your sons, and give them to me. Verse 3, then all the people, then they're throwing gold at him. They're giving it to him, and he takes a graving tool, and he makes a golden molten calf. And he sets it before them and says, this 
is your God, O Israel. This is who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Okay, so let's remember context. God said, if you do what I say and if you keep my commandments, then you will be a people of my own possession. Forty days. And they've already, out of the oven, pops a golden calf that they're saying, this is our true God. Forty days. They've broken the covenant. And now God and the Israelites, they are not his prized possession because the condition was, if you do this, then you'll be my prized people. And they were chosen by God, I say, to reveal to us God's desire for a prized people. In fact, the psalmist picks up on this in Psalm 102, verse 18. And all these verses are in the Bible app, bibleapp.lifejourneyva.com. The psalmist says, this will be written for the generations to come, that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord. Hmm, who in the world is he talking about? A people yet to be created? This is for their benefit? Doesn't that sound like the new covenant to you? Doesn't that sound like 2 Corinthians 5, 17? Being man, being Christ, he is a new creation, yet created? Well, that's us today. And so this pattern of God desiring a people of his own possession, but mankind, no matter how much they want to, because sin is in them, they fail at it and fail at it and fail at it. But God's desire has always been for a people of his own possession. And the psalmist is saying, hey, look, the day is going to come when a people are created new, and they will enjoy this. Can I just say, church, that's you. If you believe in Jesus, you are the creation that he, the psalmist, is prophesying about. So we get to Jesus' time. We're going through the history of mankind here, skipping a little bit. And we get to Jesus' time, and he shows up on the scene. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, look, guys, I've not come to destroy the law. Remember the law. It was the thing. If you keep it, then you'll be a people of my own possession. Jesus said, I haven't come to destroy it. I have not come to abolish the law or the prophets, but I've come to fulfill it. What that means is Jesus didn't come to take 613 impossible things for us to do and whittle it down to about four or five that are easy for us to do. That is abolishing the law. That's destroying the law. He said, I didn't come to do that. I didn't come to take the standard that was here and bring it down so we can kind of step over it if we're really, really good. He said, I came to fulfill it. I came to do what you couldn't do. O Israel, I came to be God now in the flesh to perfectly fulfill every single element of the Mosaic law so that now God will have a people of his own possession. So who are the people of his own possession? Follow me. If Jesus is the one who has fulfilled every single last standard of the perfect law, he is the one who is the prized possession. And check this out. If you believe him and by faith have received his righteousness, you are now in him. You are now in the one who has perfectly fulfilled the righteous requirement of God's law. And so therefore, because you are no longer in Adam, but you are now in Christ, guess what? You are now the people of God's own 
possession. Before, it was by the work of the flesh, of the people, of people. Now, there was flesh, God who came in flesh, which we're celebrating this month, to fulfill perfectly this law that we could never fulfill so that we who transfer our trust from ourselves doing it to Jesus who has done it, we now become the people of God's own possession. And Peter picks up on this in 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, now Peter is written to Jews. This is so powerful. He says, you Jews are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, which they might say, yeah, we're Jews. Of course we are. Well, let's keep reading. You are a people of God's own possession so that you may proclaim the excellency of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Now look at verse 10. This, is, this rocked my world a little bit this week. I texted Jim about this. It says, for you, he's writing to Jews, you were once not a people. Wait a second, Jews were not a people? They were not a people because they violated this righteous requirement. But now you are a people. For you had not received mercy. Remember back in the, in the desert, you didn't receive mercy when you broke the, the covenant then. But now, because of Jesus, in the new covenant, you have received mercy. Wow. Wow. So we now, because we trust in Jesus, we have become receivers of mercy. And we've gone, even as Gentiles, from being not a people at all to now being a people of God's own possession. Paul picks up on this in 1 Corinthians 6, where any possession cost a price, right? We talked about that. He says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you, who is in you, from you, whom, you uh, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? Look at this. For you have been bought with a price. Every prized possession comes at a price, whatever it is. Whatever it is. Christmas is coming up. The prized possession, what do you want? What do your kids want? going to cost you something. Money, usually. Maybe time. You know, maybe it's a piece of artwork that you really desired. You've had it in your head, and you want to create it. Will is a composer, and so he's got these thoughts in his mind, and he's, he spends time and hours composing it for movies. Whatever it is for you, it takes time. There's a price involved in having a prized possession. We were just talking about that tractor, Larry, that you, you got from uh, somebody, your, your, your father-in-law or something like that, yeah. And it's taking a lot of time to get that thing back, but it's a prized possession. It's an antique or something. It, it's, so any sort of prized possession comes at a price. Well, you're no different. There was a price that was paid in order for you to actually be the possession of God. So how much are you willing to pay for that possession that you want? Because for most of us, there's going to be a max that we're willing to pay to get that thing we've always wanted. Well, what was the price that God was willing to pay to have a people of his own possession? You see it? The price was the death of his own son. You want to talk about value? You want to talk about worth? Wow. 
God desired a people of his own possession so much that he created everything. We've talked about that. And then we messed it all up in humanity. And then he chose a people, the Israelites, to, to show us, to reveal to us that he still desires a people of his own possession, but no one could fulfill the requirement to be his possession. And so he made a way with his son, Jesus, shedding his blood, spilling it to remove all the sin that separates us from him so that by a payment, you are now a people of his own possession to whom he now cherishes, to whom he now loves, to whom he now guides and protects, bought with a price. Wrapping up, going back to our passage in Titus chapter 2, it says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness, and worldly desires to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age. So how does, bottom line, how does Jesus, a.k.a. the, the gospel, uh, the, the grace of God, how does Jesus instruct us to say no to sin and yes to Jesus? And here's our journey marker. It's very similar to last week's, and it's be very similar to next week's. It's this. Jesus instructs us on how to live by revealing to us who we now are, really. We are His. Last week, we saw that we are forgiven. This week, we see we are His. Next week, we'll... No, you got to come back. But we are His, a people of His own possession. Look, identity is everything. If you trust Jesus, then you are now a people of God's own possession. He sought you. He bought you with the price of his redeeming blood. He loves you. He desired you. He longed for you. Not because there was anything cool about you. Because what were we? This is the most scandalous part about the gospel. There was nothing good about you. It's all good about him and his love. You see, when he bought us and sought us, what were we? We were wretched, sin-filled flesh, dead in our sins and the uncircumcision of our hearts. When he loved us, we were still married to the flesh. When he sought after us, we were 100% incompatible with him. He desired us when we were still indulging in the desires of the flesh. And by our minds, we were still by nature children of wrath. But God, I love that. This is Ephesians 2. But God, being rich in his mercy and with the, because of the great love with which he's loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved. And that's not enough. He raised us up together with him and has seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus in kindness towards us. He's done this. So that in the ages to come, why would he do this? So that in the ages to come, he might show off the surpassing riches of his grace. 
See, it's not about you looked good, and so he said, hey, I'll take you. He is so good. He wants to reveal for all of time future of just how good he is by taking a people who were not his people and making them his people because of his love towards us. For by grace we have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. It's all by grace. It's not just grace that gets us in, but it's grace that actually instructs us on how to say no to sin and yes to Jesus. Now look, this might totally backfire. Here's how we're going to wrap this up. This might totally backfire, and we might have to cut this off the podcast. So work with me here. We've spent 30 minutes talking, listening, being reminded of, and being revealed to the love of God and what he's done because he's desired a people of his own possession and, and the price he paid to get it and now how much he loves us and cherishes us and will never leave us nor forsake us. We've been talking for 30 some minutes about this great love with which he's loved us and the desire he has for you to be his. And now you are through Jesus. How many of us during these this few minutes as we've been being reminded and being revealed of us being his possession, how many of us have been longing during this time period to sin? This is the backfire part. How many of us, in other words, as we've been blown away with, with this grace of God and the extent to which he went through, through creation, through even choosing a people to show us how much he wants a people, and then what Jesus did, how many of us are longing and desiring to say, you know what, God, thanks, but no, I'm going to go back to that former love or sin. Maybe, maybe there's some. But here's the thesis of Paul. The more grace you see, the more changed you'll be. It isn't law that instructs us on how to live. It's actually a growing revelation of what Jesus has done. And oh, how he loves us. It's grace itself that teaches us. Because as our minds are being renewed to what he's done, then we are learning by default. Jim calls it the byproduct of our union with him is the ability to say no to sin and yes to him. I want to leave you with one verse that might just be a cosmic atom bomb in your mind today. Before we throw it up on the screen, ask yourself, what is the power of sin? What is it in you that actually excites the sin to happen yet again? What is it? What is it? Don't, don't answer aloud. What is it that you think is the power, the thing that causes sin to happen in your life? Because the scriptures actually tell us what it is, and they might, the scriptures might be wrong and you might be right, but I'm going to go with the scriptures. Let's put the verse up. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 56. The Apostle Paul says, The power of sin, say it with me, is the law. Anybody just have a little? Wait a second. I thought the law was what taught us to say no to sin and yes to Jesus. No, not according to the apostles, not according to the scriptures. The law was given, and it did a perfect job at what it was designed to do. It was designed to show us that none of us can actually be right 
with God on our own. And he gives the law, he gave the law to the Israelites, the Ten Commandments, to actually excite this thing that might have been dormant called sin, to bring it to full fruition. Paul says in Romans 7, I didn't even know what coveting was until I saw don't covet. And then all of a sudden, because of the law that took root in me, there was now a desire to covet all the more. Does that mean the law is bad? No. The law is good. It's perfect in every single way. And it does and has done what it is designed to do to reveal to us that no one is righteous, no, not one. And now Jesus has come. And we've died to the law. We've died to sin. And we are now alive together with Christ Jesus. Let's go ahead and stand up and pray. Our bands, our, our, our guitarist and singer is going to come up and close us in a song. If you this morning have not yet come to faith in Jesus, I encourage you to do so. If you haven't yet trusted in Jesus, man, I don't know what to say other than do it. Start trusting him. Because, I mean, what, what is left other than continuing in this attempt after attempt after attempt to be right with God on your own? It's just not going to happen. The law shows us it's not going to happen. But I would imagine the majority of our people are, are those who are believers in Jesus, but yet we think that we need to go to Moses and to the law in order to learn how to say no to sin and yes to Jesus. And I'm just saying, let's, let's just believe what the Scriptures say. The reality of you being a possession of God, his prized people because of Jesus, that, as we dwell on it, as we believe it, it actually teaches us to say no to sin. And yes, to Jesus. Father, we just thank you for this time. We pray, Father, that your spirit, spirit would reveal to us more and more what this grace is, how meaningful it is to our daily lives, and how we can now move forward in life with this greater revelation that we are yours. We are forgiven last week. We are yours this week. I pray that we come back next week to see what else we are, all by grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you again for listening to today's podcast of the teaching at Life Journey Church in Crozet, Virginia. We'd love to hear from you. If God is doing something special in your life, let us know by sending an email to info at lifejourneyva.com. Feel free to pass today's teaching on to any friends and family that you'd like, but please don't change any of it or charge for it. This podcast is made available for free as a ministry of Life Journey Church. If you would like to support the proclamation of the gospel of the grace of God, you can make a donation now on our website, lifejourneyva.com. Have a great day.